Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. You do not have to be perfectly agreed doctrinally to be one with other Christians. A lot of times we tend to think that unless somebody sees things exactly the way we do regarding aspects of our faith, that we need to disassociate from them. Well, we have to understand that there are levels of doctrine. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, in a message titled, Is Christ Divided? Now, here's Pastor Brian. Our focus today is going to be on the question that Paul asked, is Christ divided? But first, I want to look quickly at a few things that are there in the first nine verses. I don't, I don't want to overlook them. Last week, as we looked at the first nine verses, we really just focused on the fact that Paul mentioned, as I've already said, Jesus Christ nine times in nine verses. So that, again, reminds us that Paul was all about Jesus, and this letter's all about Jesus. But there are a number of other things that we read over, but we didn't really um, comment on them. So, so I want to go back as sort of an introductory thing, and I want to just make a few comments. So there are seven things that I want to mention to us from these first nine verses, and I am going to cover those seven things in seven minutes So we're going to go really quickly through these things because, again, uh, it's not the really the the gist of where I feel like the Lord wants us to go today, but I think it's important to have these things there in the background and our understanding as we enter in. So first thing I want you to notice in the very first verse, verse, Paul introduces himself as an apostle, but then he also mentions this this person, he says, our brother Sosthenes. And the reason that this is so interesting is because in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, which is where we have the historical background for the establishing of this church, we have also there a reference to Sosthenes. But in Acts, we find him not as a a partner in the gospel with Paul, but we find him as someone who's opposing Paul and the gospel. And so there in the 18th chapter, Sosthenes was the one who inspired a kind of a revolt against the message of Paul. They took him, they brought him before the magistrates, and they tried to get the magistrates to condemn him. And the proconsul at that time, or the, you know, the civic leader there in the community was a man named Gallio. And Gallio, when they bring Paul and they, they come with these charges against him, he says, oh, look, I, you know, these are religious issues. These are, these are things I, I don't want to be involved in. He said, if it was a matter of crimes or wrongdoing, O oh Jews, then I would listen to you. But since this has to do with your religion and your laws, I don't want to have any part of it. So he refused to try Paul. 
Now, this man, Sosthenes, who kind of led this whole thing against the apostle, it says that after that, the crowd took him and right there before Gallio, they beat him. And it says that Gallio didn't do anything about it. He didn't care about it. But here's the fascinating thing. Now, let me say this before I say how fascinating it is. I mean, it is possible that these are two different people with just the same name, but I don't think it's really likely because this man is a leader of the Jewish synagogue. That's, that's where he is originally. So I think what Paul's doing in introducing himself along with Sosthenes, he's reminding the Corinthians of the power of the gospel, that the gospel is, to, is able to take even those who are opposed to it initially and bring them around by God's grace and bring them into the family. So Paul introduces himself along with this man, Sosthenes. Now, in verse two, here's another thing I want us to see. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Now, the New International Version does not use the word saint. Instead, it just sort of communicates the essence of what the word saint means. The word saint means holy people people who are set apart. I think there's some wisdom in this because even still today in the church and even in the world to some degree, people who are familiar with church, there's confusion about what a saint is. And there are still a bunch of people that think of saints as a special category of Christian, a unique group of Christians who excelled far beyond other Christians and therefore they were canonized as saints. But that's never the way the New Testament used the term. The New Testament always uses the term to speak of all of those who believe in Jesus as those who have been set apart as the people of God. And so the NIV correctly changes it and and really, you know, sort of modernizes and updates it. But it gives us the actual meaning to to those who are God's holy people. Every person who is a Christian is in that category of God's holy people. Holy means set apart. We've been set apart by the Lord for his glory and for his purposes. Now, Paul goes on and he says this concerning them. Two things, I'll tie these together. He says, um, for in him, or he says, "I, I thank God, Uh, For you, because his grace given to you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. So he says they're enriched with speech and knowledge and they're not lacking any spiritual gift. So this is is a, a church where these people have really been gifted by God. God has seen fit to supernaturally equip them so that they understand the truth and they are able to communicate the truth and they have these gifts, these spiritual gifts that are working in their midst and through them. As a matter of fact, this letter to the Corinthians 
has the most extensive teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit out of all of the writings of the New Testament. So when we get to chapters 12 through 14, we are going to have, in a sense, kind of a mini-series on the gifts of the Spirit because that's what those chapters are taken up with. But here's the thing that I want us to see. Here they are. They've been enriched by God. They've been gifted by God. That's one side of it. But you know what the other side is? The church is kind of a mess as well. And we're going to see that. And, and it kind of is just, it's just a reminder that God is good. And sometimes despite ourselves, he is still blessing and he's working and he's doing things with us and among us, even though we might be messing things up at the time. But, but of course, he doesn't, he doesn't plan for us to stay messed up. And that's what this whole letter is about. This letter is what you might call a very uh, a corrective letter. So, you know, some of Paul's letters are very, well, you might say doctrinal. And in other words, they communicate deep theological truths to us. Corinthians does that a little bit, but not so much. It's more corrective. They just had all kinds of problems. And Paul's going to go from one to the next to the next, all the way through to correct their misunderstanding and, and misbehavior. So we see there again God's grace at work. They're enriched. They're not lacking any spiritual gift despite the fact that they're kind of screwed up. Now, fifthly, look at what it says. He says concerning them, he says, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So he says that they are eagerly waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. What this means is they're waiting for the return of the Lord. And every generation of Christians, you know, God built it into his word that every generation of Christians could anticipate the coming of the Lord. You know, the scripture never tells us, never gives us a date, never tells us the, the exact time the Lord is going to come. It, it always leaves that ambiguous so that every generation could live with that hope. And so here we are in the very first century, these Gentile believers who have come to faith, they are living with this hope of Christ being revealed or the revelation of Christ. This is the same word that, you know, some Bibles, mostly Catholic Bibles, will translate the Greek word apocalypsis into apocalypse. And so if you have a Catholic Bible and you go to the last book of the Bible, you go to the apocalypse. That's just taking the, the Greek word and anglicizing it. Most translations, apart from the Catholic version, translate revelation because that's what the word apocalypse means. It means revelation. It means to be revealed. So they're waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Paul assures them in verse eight, he, speaking of Christ, will also keep you firm to the end. So the promise, he will keep you firm. He will keep you strong all the way to the end. It's kind of like Paul said in other places, he that began a good work in you will complete it. He's reminding the Corinthians of the same thing. 
The Lord's going to complete what he started in you. And then the final thing that he says in the final verse here, verse 9, he says, God is faithful who called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. So God's going to keep you firm. He's going to keep you strong. He's going to complete the word he started, and you can bank on it. He's faithful. So those are the things that I think we needed to just really quickly look at. Now let's move on, and let's focus now on what our primary point is today. And again, it goes back to that question, that rhetorical question that Paul asks, is Christ divided? Now, you know what a rhetorical question is, right? A rhetorical question is a question that there's an obvious answer for. And so we're going to see, Paul asked the question, is Christ divided? We're going to see what the answer is in a moment. But in verse 10, Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind, thought, and purpose. I'm adding purpose because the, the word uh, lends itself to it there. So what we have in verse 10, uh, Paul is, now remember, so Paul's the founder of this church. He spent a year and a half there getting the church established. He's now moved on to other things, but he's now writing back to them to try to help them through some of the problems that have developed. And one of the problems that has developed is a division. There's a division in the church. The word translated uh, division is schismata. And we get the word uh, schism from that. But it's a word that means a tear or a split. And so what Paul is saying is, he's saying that the, the body of Christ, uh, through your behavior, the body of Christ is being torn up. And this is not a good thing. Now, here's something that we really all need to understand. The context here. So these splits and these tears and these things that are happening, the context is not about doctrine. It's not about doctrine. Now, sometimes that is what's happening. It's, it's doctrinal issues. And some of the other epistles address similar kinds of things that were happening, but they were happening over doctrine. But the context here is not about doctrine. And here's the point that we all need to understand. You do not have to be perfectly agreed doctrinally to be one with other Christians. Now, we need to know that because a lot of times we tend to think that unless somebody sees things exactly the way we do regarding aspects of our faith, that we need to disassociate from them. We need to separate from them, and we need to let other people know, too, that, hey, you should stay away from those people because they hold different views than we do. Well, we have to understand that there are levels of doctrine. There are what you might call primary doctrines and secondary doctrines, now, when it comes to primary doctrines, primary doctrines are those teachings that all Christians must adhere to in order to be Christians. 
So nobody who is genuinely a Christian is going to be saying something else or rejecting primary doctrine. Primary doctrine refers to things like who God is, the person of God. Well, the the Bible reveals to us that there's one God, but there's one God in three persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus died an atoning death. Jesus bodily rose from the dead. These are primary doctrines. If you don't believe those things, you're actually outside of the Christian faith. But then there are secondary doctrines that we might disagree about, but we are not to break fellowship over. But this is inevitably what happens all the time. Christians divide over secondary doctrines. They take secondary doctrines and they kind of elevate them to more of a primary place. And then they say, we can't associate with you. And you know, sometimes they get nasty and they call people things like heretics because they don't hold to our view on these things. And that is wrong. And it's tragic and it's pervasive and it should not be. So really quickly, what are we talking about with secondary doctrines? I'll just mention three, just so you you get what we're talking about. Uh, Creation. Creation. Now, all Christians, all Christians believe that God created the universe. No Christian doesn't believe that. But what Christians differ over is just exactly how God created the universe. That's where the debate comes. Now, some people believe that God in spoke the universe into existence and then assembled everything together in six literal days and on the seventh day rested and that's how it happened. I'm one of those Christians. I believe that. Other Christians say, well, you know, it doesn't seem like it happened like that. You know, I think with science and stuff, maybe maybe it happened like God created everything, but he, he put in an evolutionary process and so he uses evolution So that's a different view, right? They're not saying God didn't do it. They're just saying, I'm not sure how God did it. I, I don't think that he did it this way. I think he did it that way. Now, some Christians have become mortal enemies over a difference of opinion about creation. Now, somebody was asking me the other day about the age of the earth kind of a thing and, you know, all of that. And I said, well, you know, I happen to be a six day a creationist, but I really don't care if you're a six-day creationist. If you are, great. If you're not, I would talk to you about it if you want me to. I'll tell you why I believe that if you want me to, but I'm not going to beat you over the head and spend all of my time trying to convince you that you need to understand this the way I do, because I'm satisfied with the fact that you know in the end that God created everything. That's what it goes back to. So creation is one. Baptism is another. You know, there have actually been wars in church history over how to baptize people. Literal wars, like not just verbal uh, jousting, but like battles that have taken place because one group believed that baptism should be done one way and another group believed that it should be done another way. The word baptize does mean to immerse. So some people say baptism is by immersion. And if you were not immersed, then you're not baptized. And other people say, well, 
I don't know, you know, I think maybe sprinkling is sufficient. It's just the idea, the symbolism of it all. And um, you know what? Who cares? You know, Paul even says, as, as, as we read, Christ didn't send me to baptize. I, I don't want to argue about baptism. Christ sent me to preach the gospel. If baptism was this thing that you had to have everything exactly precise on it, I don't think Paul could have said what he said here. So baptism is one. And then finally, just quickly, um, eschatology. Eschatology means the, the study of last things. So this is last day stuff, it's prophecy stuff. Again, all Christians believe that Jesus is going to come back. All Christians believe that. Jesus is going to come back and set up the kingdom of God. Again, it's just a matter of what it's going to look like. Uh, how is it going to happen? What is the time frame for it? What are the different aspects to it? And so um, it's, it's over the details of how it might happen that a lot of times divisions take place. But they shouldn't. You see, that's the point. Hey, you believe that Jesus is going to come back and set up God's kingdom? I believe it. I believe it's going to happen like this. You think it's going to happen like that? Neither one of us really know exactly how it's going to happen. So let's just love each other, like the Bible says, and let's carry on in the business of serving Jesus. So that's what we should do. So my whole point here is to say that Paul is dealing with something different than that here. He's not even talking about that stuff. And again, I want us to understand that the problem here is a power struggle, not a theological controversy. And like I said, we need to understand that we do not all have to think the same way about secondary issues. We can still love one another and serve the Lord side by side, even if we don't see eye to eye on secondary issues. So here, Paul, he's dealing with personality politics and power plays within the church. So one writer summed it up like this. He said, Paul does not require uniformity or replication in every detail of doctrine, but a non-competitive attitude that sets aside all hint of power play. He wants them, the Corinthians, and all of us, to all take the same side and to be free from factions. Paul wants us to all, hey, we're all on the same team. That's what he wants us to understand. Christians are on the same team. But if we break ourselves all up into a bunch of different teams, then this is going to be problematic. So what was the specific problem that Paul is writing about? Well, he goes on and he tells us about it in verses 11 and 12. He says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter. And still another, 
I follow Christ. January, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Out of the Black Shadows by Stephen Longu with Ann Coombs. Abused, abandoned, empty, and angry. This is a story of many youth in our culture today. And it's also the beginning of the story of the life of Stephen Longu, a young African man turned terrorist during a time of political and social unrest in Africa. In his book, Out of the Black Shadows, Stephen Longu shares his testimony of being abused by his father abandoned by his mother, rejected by family, to ultimately finding inner healing, peace, reconciliation, and true purpose through Jesus. If you want to be inspired by the transformation and healing God can produce in a life, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book, Out of the Black Shadows by Stephen Lungu with Ann Coombs, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of 1 Corinthians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.